Hey, what's up, everybody? It's your girl, Ida Rodriguez. Welcome to another episode of Truth Serum. First and foremost, I want to say thank you to all of you who tuned in on Tuesday for our election edition of Truth Serum. We had a party. Uh, so many people stopped by. If you haven't seen the episode, please go back and check it out. Um, Angela Yee, Ben Crump, Chris Spencer. Uh, it was a party. Quite a few people stopped by. Julissa Alcerraya. Um, and it was just a great conversation about the moment, what we're ha what we're experiencing right now. Um, you know, the delusions that life is going to change when there's a new president in office or if uh, Nutso 45 comes back. So, um, you know, we just had a great conversation. One of the things that happened this week, though, during the uh, conversation around the election was the voter blocks and the voter groups. And um, a lot of things have been stirred when it comes to the Latino Latinx vote. And so um, we wanted to have a conversation about that because in the, uh, the, uh, the American fashion of always uh, causing divide division amongst people of color, black people in this country, one of the, uh, the biggest things we've been dealing with in the last few years is the realities of black and brown communities and the tension between black and brown people, uh, the, different, the different realities depending on where you are from Florida to New York to California, it's all very different. So today um, I'm bringing on a special guest so that we can have this conversation. As always, this is an interactive experience. So, you know, you can sound off in the comments sections and if your, if your comments make sense and are worthy of a conversation, we'll do that. And if they're foolish, you get blocked. That's how we do it over here. Um, anyway, um, uh, coming to, to join me in the conversation is um, one of uh, civil rights uh, rising stars. He and I have a very good friend in common um, as is Mr. Benjamin Crump. You know, Ben is not just a friend of the show, but someone that I call a mentor and someone I love dearly. He's a civil rights attorney and a social justice advocate, which means um, he's not just starting fires, he's putting them out. And that's why um, I like the word advocate better. So please uh, join me in welcoming Charles Coleman Jr. Good afternoon or good morning over there, because uh, I know it's still AM on the West Coast. Uh, so glad to be here. Really excited about com today's conversation. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you're here. I like the um, the hoodie. Um, it's really nice. Black brilliance. Um, That's right. Yeah, it's dope, dope. So let's get let's jump into it because um, so we've been watching the uh, the voter turnout. Right. We've been watching the coverage of these, this election. It's all very polarized people, uh, depending on which outlet you're watching, you're getting a, a, some different information and different sets of statistics. But the truth of the truth is, is that there is tension in, within the black and brown communities. And um, we have to unpack it because when we say black lives matter, we forget that a lot of Latinos are black. And when we talk about um, these issues, the Latin, the Latino Latinx spectrum is one that is very varied in culture, race, you know, uh, identity. And I think that um, we should have this conversation. So what I want to ask you first is, how do you see it? Where, where do you see? Um, I, I, I actually, you and I had a conversation and you said, right. my, my people are mad. Some we are. 
I think, you know, I think a large part of, and as you've already said, there's a lot to unpack with this conversation. And I think that a large part of what is necessary to unpack starts and stops with understanding the difference in our experiences, but then not allowing those differences to serve as a barrier when we come to the table. So, you know, as with most things, a lot of what is serving as an obstacle to us having a reasoned and balanced conversation around these issues is the notion of ignorance. Many of us are not informed around our respective places in the diaspora and where we all fit. And so because of that, some of us have sort of taken it upon ourselves to make ourselves or our group, whatever whatever group it is that we belong to, arbiters around blackness. And so that in and of itself is a conversation because it certainly dictates who gets to sit at the table and who has a say in ways that I think ultimately are problematic. The other thing that I think is an issue, and this is a sort of a, a very significant conversation that we have to have is our experiences culturally in this country are very different. Um, we, you and I had a conversation about ADOS and the ADOS movement. And the reality is that American descendants of slavery have a very different and unique experience in America as compared to other pockets of ethnic minorities within America. It's not necessarily to say that we don't all face discrimination. It's not necessarily to say that we aren't all held back by systemic racism and systemic inequity. Of course, those things are true, but I think that there is a need to account for the difference in experience in a way that validates the experience of ADOS people without necessarily minimizing the experiences of others who are at that table. The reason that this is relevant is because from a very uh, political place around our feelings, right? Like I think we have to start taking out our feelings from this conversation and deal with the facts. In America, our communities may not necessarily have permanent alliances. We only have permanent interests. And that comes from a quote that came from, um, not Mel Watt, uh, um, Clay, Clay Lacey, William, William, uh, yeah, William Lacey Clay from St. Louis, Missouri, who's a congressman. Uh, he once said very famously that black people have no permanent alliances, we only have permanent interests. And I think that it's really important that we sort of embrace that strategy because we have been approaching political alliances with a butcher knife as opposed with, to, to with a scalpel. And what I mean by that is we may not be able to rock with each other on every issue that comes, uh, comes before us. We may not be able to align in a way that we just have these permanent longstanding alliances, allegiances, and coalitions that's, that work for everything. There may be issues that we can work together to accomplish together. And then there may be issues that we just may not be able to rock with each other on. And I think that that is the type of nuanced approach that we need to start having with respect to politics. A lot of people in my community are upset with the Latino community because they don't necessarily understand, understand the nuance within that community. And they look at the exit polls and they see high numbers of Trump voters from Puerto Rico. They see extremely high numbers of Trump voters from Florida in a way that arguably may have contributed to Trump winning the state in Florida. And so because they don't necessarily understand the nuance between Colombians, Venezuelans, uh, Puerto Ricans, uh, uh, native born Dominicans, um, Dominicans who are, are here in the United States, like because they don't necessarily see that cultural nuance and how those cultural nuances play out, especially within the context of people who are either embracing their place in the diaspora 
or rejecting their place in the, the diaspora. Latinos, even Afro-Latinos get painted with a very broad brush. And people are like, oh, y'all not on the team. We can't rock with you. But I also think that part of it requires an education on everybody's part to understand where, in fact, they sit in the diaspora. And when I say they, I'm not saying like you, they, us. I'm talking about each individual pocket so that we understand that even if there's an experience that falls within the diaspora that doesn't mirror my own, it still has a place and it still deserves to be validated within this conversation, even if it means we may not be able to align on every single thing. Right. So I, I completely agree. First of all, Puerto Ricans did not vote in high numbers for Donald Trump. So it depends on what polls. Define high numbers. Because like I, I don't know this year. I don't know 2020 yet. In 2016, it was like 30%. So it's lower than okay. that this time. Okay. Remember that he went over there and threw paper towels at our people. <laughs> and he also, you know, uh, attacked the, the mayor of San Juan, yep. who, a, a friend of mine, and um, who was in a boat saving people. And he was talking shit about her. But what I do, I think it's very important that we have this conversation because of many of the things that you said are really on point. Now, when you talk about Black people who are Latinos, because there are Black people who are Latinos, it was there are Black people who are, um, you know, Jamaican, Bahamian, they are, they do not belong to that group. And, you know, like, so a lot of people that I know have issues with ADOS. And like I said to you, I don't, I, I think it's important and I think it's honorable for black people to look out for black people, specifically when it has been um, tried to make a, a make, make it a standard for black people to also not look out for black people in addition to everybody else. So I, I totally understand that. And I, and when we talk about reparations, like I say, and I've said on the show before, I don't think that anybody here has to, um, you know, try to partake in the reparations that belong to the American descendants of slaves. There are many other countries who owe those people as well. And, you know, when we talk about the Dutch and the British and we talk about the French there and the Spanish, like they owe, they owe, they owe people. And I think reparations is something that should be paid across the board. Now, when we, we, we had this conversation and it was, it's a very passionate conversation because in addition to being grouped differently within the, the Latinx uh, spectrum, we also talk about geography, whereas in California, the, the relationship between Latinos, Latinx people and black people in, 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 in California are very different than the relationships or the relations between Latinos, Latinx people and black American people in New York. And then Florida is a whole other thing. I I, uh, I do think it's important for everybody to see what their issues are within their community. How do we find common ground? That's a great question. Again, I think the, the, the first key, first and foremost, has to be education, right? Like, so it's, it's very difficult or it's a much greater challenge for us to come together if you are hell-bent on denying who you are just so you can be away from me, right? Like if, if so much of where you are psychologically is hell-bent on denying your Black blood and denying your Blackness and denying your place in the diaspora, then you're already trying to separate yourself in a way that is 
kind of difficult. Likewise, if I don't understand or appreciate that the only thing that was different between my ancestors and your ancestors is that you got dropped off at an earlier point and your colonizers spoke a different language than mine, right? Then I'm also sort of harboring that difference. So a lot of that starts with education, right? The second piece that I would say is it has to be, as cliche as it sounds, it has to be broken down into humanity because we did frame this conversation around voting because it's political season. We're in the middle of an election. Um, we still don't know who the president is going to be technically. So I understand that. But on a larger level, like if you step out, black people don't necessarily feel like members of other ethnic demographics have shown up for us around humanitarian issues in the same ways that we've shown up for them. So if you look at DACA, that's, I mean, that's a policy political issue. But if you look at immigration and not just Trump, but also Obama and cages and everything else around families being separated and those things, in large part, in my community, I did see a number of people who were extremely vocal around those issues. That's not to say that it may have been as big or should or as it should have been, but I'm saying that I saw it. Right. But when you look at necessarily like in large, right, when you look at the conversation about um, police violence against communities of color and police violence against black people, there are a lot of black people who do not feel like members of the Latin community have shown up for us in the ways that we would like. That's right. not to say that it's been completely absent, right. but, it is to, but it is to say like on a certain level, people be feeling like, yo, so this shit don't affect y'all or, or it doesn't affect y'all because you don't think you're like me so that you don't have to show up. And that's very, very offensive and it's very insulting. And it's very kind of like, I'll, I'll, I'll remind you, you and I had a conversation about hip hop very briefly. It's, it's like Snoop at the 96 Source Awards, where he's like on stage, like, oh, word, that's how you feel? Oh, okay, cool, let it be known then. And that's how a lot of us feel. And so when you detach that from a human, from the issue of around humanity, it makes it a lot harder for us to come together. So I think the very first thing is education. And then I think after that, like it has to be the ability to just simply examine the issues that matter to us from the perspective of being human. And right. then, and then, you know, and then finally, like when you get to the more finite, um, uh, more specific points, it is a question of like, all right, now how does aligning with you on this particular issue affect my ask for my community? That's the scalpel, right? Like, and, and there may come a point where it's like, I can only go so far with you on this because of the way that the things that I need to get done in my community. And in some places it's like, I can go with you all the all the way on this, but that's the last step. And a lot of times I feel like we sort of start there instead of starting on the front end. And that's where I think we get it wrong. So now, I, and, and I got to respond to what you're saying because I do agree with a lot of that. I mean, but I think that is very important for people to understand that um, people from who've been colonized in other parts of the world, no different than the people who've been colonized in America, also practice uh, self-hate. So when we have these conversations about how, first of all, when we talk about DACA as it being an exclusively Latino issue, as if that Africans that come here 
or people that come from Jamaica or people that come black, a lot of black people are also recipients of DACA and excluding black people from these conversations leaves a big group of people with no place to call home when the Latinos or Latinx people are employing their racism against them. And then black people in America are saying, you ain't one of us either. So when, when we talk about immigration as it, as it is a total uh, exclusive Latinx um, issue without acknowledging the fact that Latinx people are also black, also indigenous. Sure. Um, you know, it, 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 it's also very problematic where I feel sometimes that Latinx people are held to a higher standard than everybody else in the world where anti-Blackness is practiced in Asia. You know, Indian people practice it. Even Black American people practice anti-Blackness. But I think the talking points don't come from us. They come from the mainstream media who love to continuously perpetuate these fights because it is... It, it is far more profitable for us to hate each other when Latinos, Latinx people are the second group who is killed uh, by the police unjustly in this country. And we never talk about that. You never, it, it took Black Lives Matter to talk about uh, Andres Guardado, again, Black people showing up for Latinos and Latinx people. It took Black people to say, hey, they killed this Mexican boy in LA, they killed this Mexican boy in Sacramento. But what I'm saying is, how do we really start to heal from this when we engage in respectability politics when it comes to Latin people, but yeah. it, and and I think that a lot of times we blame them for their blame them for their own oppression because the help the self hate that they're practicing is all part of the colonization, and so, so it's no different in any part of the world than it is here in America. So I think we really do have to focus on the education piece because without that like without the enlightenment piece in terms of breaking cultural stereotypes that have allowed anti-blackness to permeate permeate within our communities that have been passed down we allow we're, we're susceptible to that manipulation right so i want to go i want to you know what i'm saying give you an example of what i'm talking about i have a couple of friends like as you said i'm a lawyer right and so i have a couple of friends who are members of the dominican bar association in in uh in new york and this summer there was a conversation among the board members of that bar association about just just issuing a statement just issuing a statement not marching not doing any protests simply issuing a statement in support of not necessarily blm but ending systemic racism, acknowledging violence against black people in America and so on and so forth. There was literally a almost, you know, virtually because it was everything was through Zoom, but a knockdown drag out fight with members on that board who were against it because they were like, I'm Dominican. I don't identify as black. Right. What does that have to do with you? Whether you do or don't is, a, is one conversation, right? But what does that have to do with recognizing the humanity of another oppressed group? That's right. That conversation is what needs to happen. What I can tell you is as an American born black person, I am constantly inundated with conversations about the need to be more inclusive. 
I got to be more inclusive of every other community. I have to understand every other community and their culture within America, despite the fact that within that conversation, I'm the only one who's actually born here in America. Not that that matters, but within the context of our conversation, hear, hear me out. Right. What conversation is occurring across the aisle in Latinx communities, for example, to be like, yo, we got to be inclusive. We got to right. be inclusive too. I feel like on a certain level, all of that pressure, and I think that's where the resentment comes in. That's where the tension rises because we are exclusively pressured to be inclusive of other groups that are not pressured internally or externally about the need for to be inclusive of us. So it's like we're the ones holding our hands out and maybe somebody shakes our hand. Maybe they leave us holding a bag. Our experience has left us jaded. And I think that that was sort of reinforced with some of the numbers that we saw from the exit polls. So I think to answer your question, that pressure around inclusion has to be spread out. It has to be shared in other groups in the same way that it's shared to us. Because if there's an expectation that as people of color, as black people, as American descendants of slavery, that we are supposed to be more inclusive of other groups because of the fact that we are all channels of the diaspora, then we need to be able to look at the other channels of the diaspora and understand that those same conversations about being inclusive, building coalitions, and then supporting those coalitions is being taken seriously. I, and listen, I, I'm one of those people, right? Because I, I am the one that gets uh, the self-hating messages about how I don't love my own people. Right, 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 right. <laughs> because I'm, I'm, I, be, I believe in that and I agree with what you're saying, right? Because on when those babies were locked up in those cages and it became it became mainstream news because babies have been locked up in cages forever um and i i actually said this has to matter to my community as much as tamir rice's death matters to my out <coughs> of the same because if not we can't ask people to come and say hey what i what i battle with sometimes is that a lot of times the black people are Latinos, right? And yes, they're, you know, like I, I grew up in Miami, Florida, between Miami and New York, but I lived in the Dominican Republic when I was little. But I grew up in a city that is made up of communities who do not want to interact or assimilate. There's little Haiti, little Havana, blah, blah, blah. And everybody is being told that black people in America are lazy and they're violent through the media, all, all the effects of colonization. And then they tell black people in America that immigrants are coming here and they're trying to take your scraps from you. Because in reality, um, ain't nobody who's coming here to be a, uh, uh, you know, a leaf, with a leaf, to work with a leaf blower and be a landscaper really taking what is rightfully yours because what's rightfully yours is is abundance, right? You built this country. There's hundreds and hundreds of years of free labor. And what is what black people deserve in this country beyond humanity is economic power. Because the, the truth of it is, is that we don't talk about those things from the most honest place. But what I'm saying is, I understand what you're saying about the, the anti-blackness that comes with communities that come here from other places and then practice it as well. But how do we how do we educate people from other places 
when the, the effects of colonization are so deep that the global conversation about racism, because we keep, we always have this conversation like it's an ex exclusive to America, but when we know that anti-blackness exists all over the world and it is all the results of the, the white supremacy and the colonization that we are still feeling today. So how do we create those inroads? Because I know a lot of Dominicans who did march, who were out there marching, right? And I do have friends who are educators who got uh, were arrested for Black Lives Matter. And they were marching for themselves just as much as they were marching for Black Americans because they know that they're Black. And the media never uh, focuses on them. The media goes straight to Dykeman over a dr uh, incident about drug dealers and makes it a racial issue. And then MAGA wow. jumped right you know what i'm saying and in, and they did it in chicago too but there are a lot of people who are latinos who understand their blackness have always understood it and you never hear about them but how do we have this conversation about the the global aspect of this cuz we've broken ourselves up into so many groups that it's to me it's like lord uh it's it's like game of thrones we all got to get together to defeat the Lannisters. So, so, so I don't disagree with you on that. I mean, I think that um, at the end of the day, it is a thing that requires us to move and work and think and act as a collective as often as possible. You know, as I said before, I don't know that it's always possible in the ways that we think. I think one of the things that we have to do in terms of our engagement in the political process and civic engagement in America is that we have to get away from the binary way of thinking that we have adopted, right? We have become so polarized and that has caused us to think in a very binary way that does not reflect any degree of nuance or any degree of intelligence. The problem with that is where we sort of position ourselves is if I don't agree with you on 10 out of 10 things or you don't agree with me on 10 out of 10 things, I can't fuck with you. I can't rock with you because you don't agree with me on everything. I don't agree with anybody on 10 out of 10 things, right? So, so from a political ideology standpoint, we have to stop focusing on those areas that we don't disagree with and figure out how do we maximize the areas where we can disagree, I mean, so where we can agree and we can find common ground. The other thing is, and, and there are two more points I want to make in, in response to your question. The first one is, we have to have the courage to give voice around anti-blackness globally when we see it. Mm -hmm. That sounds a lot easier than it is. Right. And the reason why I say that is once you become sort of aware of the depths of anti-blackness and what it means, mm -hmm. you start to see it damn near everywhere. And you also start to see it in things and traditions and places and culture and, and traditions that you actually may like or have uh, or have been associated with or identify with as harmless, right? So when you're at home with abuela or abuelo and or tia and tia tio and you and you all start talking and they start saying things that speak to like colorism, for example, you're like, oh shit. So now I'm with my niece. And she's hearing my grandmother talk about this in a way that I grew up hearing or witnessing or observing in whether it was in my household or whether it was in my neighbor's household or what have you, that seemed harmless, but is also contributing to this sense of anti-blackness. I now have a choice. Am I going to like say something to my grandmother about this or am I going to pull my niece aside and say, yo, listen, I know that this happened and so on and so forth. Um, but 
you know, the reality is that way of thinking is actually problematic. And here's why I'm going to have that conversation with you that I may not have with Abuela, but but I'm having with you because you need to understand going forward why that is a problem. That takes a lot of courage because there are a lot of traditions that we're very comfortable in and very comfortable with that are anti-black that we don't even realize, right? And if we don't have the courage in order to do that, then we're going to fail. The last thing that I want to say on the piece about like, how do we, you know, educate and, 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 and give voice to that is politically speaking, right? Black people, I'm not even going to bare bones about this. Black people are tired. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is like folks who are non-ADOS and I, you know, I, I think that there is, there is a, a, a valid ideology behind ADOS, but I'm, I want to be clear. I'm not here carrying the ADOS flag like as a representative. I'm just simply talking about ADOS as a specific group. But black people who are ADOS are tired. And, and, and so what I mean by that is this is very uncomfortable to have a conversation about, but we have to have a conversation about because mm -hmm. it is it is necessary and it's honest. That's why we, I want to hear. Yeah, no doubt. We don't have the energy to try to convince your ass, your Dominican ass, that your Puerto Rican ass, we don't have the energy to try to convince you that you black and fight our oppressor at the same time. Right. We don't like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we don't have the energy to do that at the same time. Like, either you gonna fuck with us and we can fuck with each other together and we can fight this oppressor together, or we just gotta go fight the oppressor and worry about that other shit on the back end. But we can't continue to do both. What does that mean? It means that, quite frankly, members of other communities, and I'm not just identifying the the Latino Latin X community. I'm talking about Caribbeans uh, that are black, you know, from from Haiti from you know uh, the west indies i'm talking about them as well i'm talking about people from africa who have immigrated to america i'm talking about them as well right, right. like we don't need to fight you about getting on the table with us because we've been here not saying that you all haven't but saying that our fight right now has to be concentrated on dealing with our oppressor and systemic inequity and dealing with that because that takes a whole lot of energy each and every day Right. So unless folks are really well willing to step up, like we just we out of benefit of the doubts. Like people say they be out of fucks. We out of benefit of the doubts. It's like you got to show like on a certain level, we really understand and we want to be here. And we're we're with the alliances, not just performatively, but actively because we don't have the energy to pull folks along while we're trying to push white supremacy away. And I listen, I agree with you, but I also think that speaking about black people as if they're a monolith is also problematic because the truth is sure. that a lot of black people who are American who ain't rocking with ADOS and are like, nah, I don't feel that way about you or I don't feel this way. And there are people. And so just like that, it, that exists within the black community. It also exists amongst uh, Latinos, Latinx people. And you know that the, the, the pain of immigrants in this country and, and they're always reminding us that we're all immigrants because this land be belongs to the First Nations people. And so when the, the reality that we're always being reminded of immigrants, there's a very big anti-immigrant sentiment in this country as well. And so when people like Haitians came here, um, I'm from Miami. And when Haitians were coming here, 
and mind you, the reality of Miami, whereas they would allow the Cubans to come in and they would send the Haitians back and babies on rafts were dying in the Atlantic Ocean and Cuban, Elian uh, Gonzalez was a real big uh, deal in this country. So we, there is the, we, we cannot ignore that truth. But when you talk to Haitians and a lot of Haitians in Miami would say, black people in America treat us like shit. They don't really understand that Haiti to, to me is sacred, right? Because Toussaint let overture and them, because it wasn't Toussaint by himself, they let, they kicked down the door for the revolution to lead to our freedom. And a lot of times they feel that they are treated poorly. But my point is that all, of, instead of pointing fingers at who is, who is more wrong, my point is how do we heal? Because they've poisoned us all into believing that because you are black American, you lazy and violent. Because I'm a, I come from immigrants, we come here to take from y'all. And they got us all fighting for the scraps while they're sitting up in, at the feast, looking down at us saying, we ain't got to do it no more. They're doing it to themselves and each other. And so for me, that is, that is exactly why I am perplexed at how to approach this mm -hmm. because I, I want to approach it from a healing perspective as to, instead of adding, you know, gasoline to the fire, because I know black people in America are tired. My grandmother came here during the civil rights movement and was reminded that if, even if she didn't speak English, she was black. Right. So she was, they was like, yeah, get in line, punk, as Martin would say. So, so go ahead. Yeah, yes. So I, I want to make a I want to make a, a, a an analogy that I will before even making understand that it is a crude analogy, but you'll see my point in a moment. A lot of times people who are well, I have a lot of conversations in the context of dealing with police and community. And the thing that always is said when police have these conversations with community and community leaders is like, yo, not all of us feel that way. Not all of us are bad. And the thing that I always say in response is until and unless you are willing and ready to actually give voice and call out those who do not align in that way from the naked eye as someone who's not a policeman, I don't know the difference. And so I think that it's very clear, like, from what you're saying, do I know cognitively that there are members of the Latina and Latino and Latinx community who do not share those beliefs? Absolutely, right? And I think you started to see some of that in terms of like, you know, we talked about the, the clip on that was on Baller Alert, where that, that woman was talking about the difference between Venezuelans and Colombians and white Cubans down in Florida and sort of making it clear that it is in fact, a different space depending on who you're talking to and understanding the differences between them. But that has to happen at a greater clip because for us, and when I say us, I'm talking about black Americans. When we look at the community and we look at those, like those exit poll numbers, for example, all we see is like, damn, that's how you feel. Oh, yep. okay. and so, so some of it has to be like, yo, I want to be very clear and consistent we don't fuck with them. We're not right. fucking with them. Like that has to be very clear because the other thing that is very important to understand about black Americans in our community is that very, very few of us as American born black people have the ability to sort of navigate our identity by way of convenience. Yes. And what I mean by that is for those people who are watching, 
who don't understand what I mean by that is, yo, you look at me, I'm black. You know that I'm black. You may not know where I'm from. You may not know like sort of the depths of my ethnicity, but that in large part is the case and the experience for most American born black people. Whereas for members of other communities, they can sort of like conveniently dip out and be like, oh, if you don't know that I'm ethnic, I won't be ethnic today because it's my advantage. And that's a privilege that certain members of ethnic groups enjoy. Obviously that's not the case for everyone, right? But it is the case for a number of different ethnic groups. The issue there is that if you don't, if you're not someone who's willing to actually give voice to be like, I don't fuck with that group over there. And what they're talking about is wrong. And, yeah. this, uh, and I'm like, the issue is that because I may be on the outside of the community, I don't know the difference. So yo, let me just, I'm gonna, let me let me cut you off right quick since you hit me with the hip hop hands. Listen, we got our white people too. And I don't think people realize that. You think those Mexicans were not looking at those Cubans and saying, y'all voted for him after what he said about us? And I wanna break it down because I think people don't really understand that Puerto Ricans, are, that's a colony. They call it a commonwealth. It's a colony. They're U.S. citizens. They are treated like slaves. Puerto Rico cannot file for bankruptcy. Look up the Jones Act. There is a lot of blackness in Puerto Rico. We're very connected to our African um, heritage. Boom. Dominicans, Española. In a, in a fucking how many decades fight with Haiti that was perpetuated by colonization right black people fighting black people saying i'm not like that right i know black i know black poppy i know i live in new york this is a like a weekly thing right no no poppy i know black i know what you look like sammy sosa before the surgery what, what are you talking about? so now you have that now you're talking about cubans right I'm, I have pure Castilian blood. I'm from the Canary Islands. <laughs> so you, what people don't really understand is that we have so much, um, we have our white people too. And white people are gonna white, white people, people after you've seen in this election. So when you talking about Latinos or Latinx people, we got our white people too, right? So. And I don't think people understand a lot of Spanish blood lives in the Caribbean. A lot of that pure Spanish blood, it lives in South Africa. You see these white people telling you they South African. It, it is, we got our white people too. So when we talk about the hip hop hands, people are commenting on the hip hop hands. Not the hip hop hands. Not the hip hop hands, Amber, I love you. But when we talk about this and when we saw what we saw in this election, People don't realize that Q Cubans, and not all Cubans, but those that voted, they don't give a fuck about immigration because they have political asylum. So immigration is not their issue. And when people say Black Lives Matter didn't resonate with the Cubans, which Cubans are you talking about? Because there are Black Cubans who are like Black Lives Matter. <laughs> and it is so complicated and it is so hard because when we're talking about, when we're talking to ignorance, you cannot even talk about this stuff because people are like, nah, the Cubans all voted for Donald Trump. I guarantee you that there were some black Cubans that were like, we ain't fucking with him. We not fucking right. with him. And there are many of us who were like, what are y'all doing? We're not all the same. So we, we were just colonized by Spain. So and we, is, 
the language. But let me just say that. That does not mean that we are all the same. Just like you and a Jamaican are not the same, it's the same thing with Latinos. Right. So I think this is where, you know, I have a big thing that I talk about in terms of having a more sophisticated conversation around race, around ethnicity, around nationality, and around our experiences as Black people, as people of color, and as people of the diaspora. I'll say that again. Black people, people of color, and people of the diaspora. Why do I say that? Because that encompasses all y'all motherfuckers. Like, <laughs> regardless of whatever group you want to say you're a part of, I just named whatever group that you want to be a part of, right? We have to begin to value facts over feelings and data over assumptions, right? Yep. Like, so data actually matters, right? And, 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 and the reason why I say that is we cannot have a reasoned conversation about what people are doing and what trends are unless we actually are informed about what people are actually doing. Like, we actually have to be able to use the data that is available to us to actually evaluate things and then have a more reasoned conversation. Um, you talked a lot early on about, you know, the sort of disconnect in terms of how do we bridge the divide? And I think the question that I have is a rhetorical one that I encourage everyone who is watching right now, who will watch later, um, and, and each of us uh, to actually wrestle with. And that is, what are you doing in your spaces every day Yes. tear down those walls around global anti-Blackness yes. to educate others? How are you using your platform, right? Like you obviously have a tremendous platform. I saw a lot of your material about anti-Blackness and colorism in our community before we even had ever spoken, right? And so, and obviously that's a platform that I and like committed to fighting and combating anti-blackness and pretty much everything that I do. Um, but I think sometimes we have the idea that we have to wait on somebody else to do it when in fact there are ways that we can have greater impact exactly where we are through conversation. And like I said, through having the courageous, being courageous enough to like be observant and see and say something when you see something and do something about it. And even if that means like, yo, I'm not actually going to continue to participate in traditions or practices that are inherently anti-Black, because now that I know better, I should do better. That's and right. I think that a large part of us has to take that personally, right? Like, if you don't take that personally, I can't take you serious, because I don't give a fuck about you showing up uh, at a Black Lives Matter rally. I mean, that's great. But at the end of the day, if in your everyday practices, you perpetuate anti-blackness, whether it's against yourself or against others, all of that other shit that you did is just performative and it doesn't really move the needle and it doesn't matter. So I think it's really important that we have to understand. Um, I want you to address this comment because I think it's better coming from you. Black is not black if Dominican is not Cuban. Black is not black if Dominican is not Cuban. So basically we all the same. <laughs> I think that, I mean, you know, I think that like on a certain level, I, I, I don't really have a problem with that. I like the reality is, you know, it's interesting. You asked me to address it, right? I want your perspective. I'm yeah, not. Yeah, no, 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 no. My, my perspective is like with this whole conversation, the, the fascinating thing about this whole conversation is that 
it's usually not black people, American black people, that are trying to get away from black, being called black. It's like, it's everybody else who for some reason has decided, I don't wanna be that. That like, whatever that is, whatever it is going to draw me closer to that, whether it's my skin color, whether it's my language, whether it's an acknowledgement of my culture, whether it's my ancestors, I wanna deny that shit. I wanna get as far away from that as possible. And I'm just sitting here in my blackness like, you think so? Like, you think you could do that? Like, that's not how this whole thing works. So for me, I don't have a problem with if black is not black, then Dominic, you know, Dominican is not human. Like, I don't have a problem with that in, in a very, very clear way. If you understand the diaspora, yeah, that's not a debate. That comment that Trap Recruiter made, if you understand the diaspora, that is not even a debate. It's but, not. And I agree with you. But the issue is that we are, first of all, I'm going to address a Lacana who's Dominican, a multiracial group. Nobody outside of America says the term black. Get the fuck out of here. And, Where the and, fuck you been, Holmes? The people say, el you're Dominican. They got a song called, Mami, el negro está rabioso. That's bullshit. I know that shit by, by heart. And the, and the thing is, we can't have these conversations if we're not going to be honest. Because not only do we have word, do we use the word black, we have words like pocolo. We say all kinds of words that are cold words to uh, to speak of black people as if they're less than our own black people. So you're going to get out of here with that bullshit because that is not the truth. And it happens everywhere because- Out here being, out here being a tigre. You already know. I've been to Africa. I've been to the continent and I know that they have words there to say, to, to stipulate what blackness is and what it means to be, to be black as if it is less than. So that's not true. But when I talk about Dominicans versus Cubans, I'm just simply talking about colonization, right? Because when we talk about colonization, you hear Latinos flexing on other Latinos saying, um, I, 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 uh, I, I speak Spanish. I speak the King's Spanish. You're not real because you don't speak the King's Spanish, right? It, it is all re uh, <laughs> results of that dumb shit that they did to colonize us. And now we holding up flags that our oppressors gave us. We tattooing them shits on our arms. Look at Goofy. Look at Goofy. Yes. Look at Goofy because the truth is they've colonized us all. And now we're sitting here having a fight about how we are different. The truth, though, the constant is whiteness versus blackness. And it exists all over the world. And those that are white enjoy certain privileges for that. And that is not exempt to uh, America. That is not exclusive to America. Uh, they, we are not exempt from that. And so oh. that is why I'm trying to what I'm trying to talk about, because we have to unpack that at some point. I want to I, I unpack uh, or rather point out something that's very important as that I thought about as you were talking, right? Um, and this is important for everybody who's in the comments. This is important for everyone. I've seen some comments who like people have appreciated this discussion and really like the discussion. And I think that there are obviously a number of different layers to our conversation. But the one thing I want to point out that's like of critical importance is we have to learn how to have this type of honest and uncomfortable dialogue with one another without it being so separating that we end up severing 
possible relationships and alliances and abilities to work together in the future. We have to be able to do that. And it doesn't mean that we're always gonna agree. We have to learn how to agree or disagree without being disagreeable, as it sounds. And for as simple as a, a, a mandate as that is, in 2020, it's very complicated for us to do for some reason. But in the end, the only people who win are white supremacists. Like That's white supremacy wins when we are not able to have these conversations in a reasoned way. Like we don't agree on everything and we're not gonna agree on everything, but that's where nuance comes into play. That's where I was talking about that 10 out of 10. So above everything else, obviously there are a lot of cultural takeaways from today's discussion that I hope people will continue to dig into and engage, but above everything else, please recognize the importance to be of being able to have reasoned and objective and honest conversation that doesn't result in a whole bunch of like, you over there and me over here because we end up doing the impressive work for us in that regard um i wanted to talk really really quickly about uh the significance of like language because yeah. we you and i talked about that a little bit in different ways and you know you just sort of hinted on it in terms of like you know the spanish that i speak is castellano and that's how i learned spanish because i learned it in grade school and you know we've talked about the different dialects and the different languages that people speak across different um, colonized nations. But I just find that so interesting that that is such a powerfully divisive tool, um, perhaps more so than skin culture in terms of keeping us within the diaspora separated. Yeah, Like we, you know, it's cliche and almost sort of basic to say like, yo, we're not talking the same language. But I can think of, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, I can think of sort of no greater um, tool to yeah. either bind or disconnect someone from their culture than actually taking their language. I think when I think about what like colonization did in that regard with respect to like Hispaniola and some people speaking French and some people speaking Creole and some people speaking Spanish, and then you know English being thrown throughout the diaspora and all of the above, I'm like, man, what a mind fuck. Like yeah. what a complete mind fuck. Yeah, and when you think about, when you just talk about um, Haitian people, right? Some people will make the, the, will point out, oh, they don't speak French, they speak Creole. Like that's not real French, right? They do that to Puerto Ricans with their Spanish, right? They're like, oh, Puerto Ricans don't speak real Spanish. They, they say, ajo. Because we are we're using our African words. And I say rice, just rice. That rice, <laughs> and because that that is our Taino in us, right? And you're right about that. I when I went to Saint Martin, people would be like, "Oh no, that's the Dutch side. Oh no, that's the French side." As if that one is better than the other. And it's like you looking at people who look like you, right? And and that's what I do. Like when I when I went to Palestine, when I went to Africa, not not. not to flex, but thankful for comedy, I've been able to travel the world and I always seek my people out. Everywhere I go, people are like, why you, when I went to New, New Orleans, the first thing I went to was the Magnolias. <laughs> I was like, I always go look for my people everywhere I go. And I'm so fascinated at the attitude that we have towards each other, depending on how we speak. And Puerto Ricans will do it with Puerto Ricans in New York and say, oh, those are New York Ricans, they don't even know how to speak Spanish. And Dominicans do it with Dominicans. Mexicans do it here with, the, they call you a huero 
or gringo because they're, you trying to be white because you in America. And yes, I think language and someone pointed out here as well, religion have been very big tools in separating us from our, our true identities. And so, yes, I agree with you. And I think, you know, I think that is part like, You don't think you speak better Spanish than me. You like, I speak, I speak Castilian Spanish. And I'm like, I, uh, I speak uh, Puerto Rican Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think, and, you know, sort of circling back, right? This is an important conversation because it is um, a need to open the door to a greater understanding. And I think that a large part of what happens is people look at American-born Blacks specifically, and they don't necessarily get why the conversation is as tense as it is sometimes. Because they're like, yo, we all face white supremacy, and we all face white oppression, and we all face systemic inequity. And they feel like, yo, we all immigrants, and they treat immigrants a certain way, and they discriminate. And, and the thing that I have to point out to people more often than not is like, I appreciate what you're coming from. I appreciate what you're saying. I appreciate the, 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 the challenges associated with your experiences, but I need you to understand, if not acknowledge that we are not the same and that I'm not an immigrant. I didn't choose to come here. My ancestors didn't choose to come here. I don't, it's not a matter of comparing comparison in the sense of being the, the, the oppression Olympics. That's not the point. The point is a lot of times what happens is our experience specifically within that diaspora and that conversation gets lumped in in a way that sort of gets blended in and watered down and our voices get lost. And that's where we get pissed off. That's the anger and the angst and the like response and the vitriol that you're seeing from a large number of people in our community. As you've already said, we're not a monolith. And so I don't profess to speak, shit, I, I barely profess, profess to speak for myself, let alone my entire community. I don't speak for my entire community, but I will say that among a large part, I don't give a fuck what Ben Carson said. We don't consider ourselves to be immigrants. And when I say we, I'm talking about American born black people, right? And so I think that understanding and appreciating and giving voice to that type of like difference, right? Like, because even for you, and for many of the people who are on here, if you're an immigrant, more than likely, you can tie yourself culturally to somewhere else other than America. But right. as a person who was black in America, who is a descendant of slavery, my shit only goes back but so far. And that's a different mind fuck to deal with altogether. So when I'm sort of processing that and operating in that space, it's almost insulting for, for somebody else to be like, Huh, I don't fuck with y'all because that, you know, y'all I'm 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 better than it's like word that word, you know what I'm saying? So it so I think that is or 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 conversely, conversely, right, to sit at the table and start talking about like our respective issues and where we can work with each other and just be told, oh nah, we we all we just all the same, or all our shit is is alike in terms of experience. Right, right, that, right. I think that part, I think, is the part where conversations like these are very, very important to understand because being enslaved uh, in, in the sense of chattel slavery and its history in America and being colonized, they definitely have similarities, but they're also different. 
because there's a cultural disconnect that, you know, I have to work infinitely harder to try to reconnect that someone who immigrated here from another place and can trace their ancestral lineage, you know, back several generations doesn't have to deal with. And that's and that matter and that matters. Yeah. That does matter. No, no, I, I totally respect that. And I think it's important um, to be able to make those distinctions. And we don't have to have the Olymp the oppression Olympics, as they say, to be able to respect that the journeys are different. And yes, you know, we do have, I, I do know like that my grandmother's grandmother was a slave. And I right. do know, you know, I can trace back to where people here in America cannot. But what I, I think the more important thing that I want people to, to walk away from is that it is possible to have conversations that are uncomfortable without us having to demonize one another. And, and the other thing that I wanted to say is because I've been called a sellout like in the last couple of weeks, several times from different groups. But the one that was the recent one was because I voted and they were like, both sides are the same. You would sell out. You'd be talking all that shit about how you down for the people, but you voting for Biden. Biden is a pedophile, the crime bill. And what I wanted to say was that I think it's important that you are just as important as ADOS is, is as important as the uh, the Afro Latino movement is as important, so that we could dismantle this. And nobody is going to be exactly the same, and everybody has their own methodology. But we have to be able to respect one another and stop throwing each other out the house because it's getting it's getting lonely in this bitch. Word, I agree with you. I think that um, and and this is sort of uh, we talked about this. At the core of our conversation, I think that this is like, you know, as we sort of round to the top of the hour, I think just like a, a great place to sort of really shift the focus to. All of us have a responsibility to deepen our understanding and our appreciation for blackness and what it looks like and what it is. Because there are a number of iterations of blackness, whether you choose to actually embrace those things is on you. But at the end of the day, None of us are the arbiters of blackness in such a way that we get to dictate who sits at that table and who doesn't. The fact that my experience in blackness is different from yours does not give me license to invalidate your experience. It also does not mean that I'm supposed to shrink my experience while at that table. We have to get to a point where we engage blackness and reimagine it differently so that we can account for all of the differences in experiences within the diaspora without trying to silence any of those voices, including those who we don't recognize necessarily as being familiar. And I think that that's a really, really big part of it. I think that this requires courage. I think that it requires us to be able to rethink of things that we thought that we knew very, very well, even if they are traditions that we've learned culturally that have been passed down, that we find out are actually incorrect, right? Like we spent, I know you and I, in terms of our age, we spent our childhood growing up, the shit was Columbus Day. It was Columbus Day, right? Like regardless of what we knew to be true factually about America, Columbus Day was a holiday. It wasn't until there was a continued forceful push around looking at facts and what actually happened to history before we rethought that history. And we was like, yo, you know what? That's actually like quite offensive to um, indigenous people here in America. And that's a problem, right? And so now we've seen that and we've continued to push that and we've had the courage to have a conversation where those traditions are changing. And I think that in the same way, 
we have to be willing to look at and engage and relearn blackness in ways that number one, allows us to identify things that are anti-black. And number two, makes us courageous enough to engage blackness as a united front where we can and allow each other to be whatever version of black that they show up as, right? If they wanna show up. And then the last thing I'm gonna say on this point, even though it may sound like sort of counterintuitive, it's how I feel. Yo, at a certain point, I'm not pulling nobody. You wanna be part, you, you don't wanna fucking be down? I'm, I'm not here to teach you about genetics and dominant genes and how your black blood makes you black. I'm not wasting time on those folks. I think that there are a certain, like a certain group of us that are just never gonna get it, not because they don't have the information, not because they're not smart enough to get it, but just because they wanna continue to be willfully ignorant. And I think that for the interest of the collective, we gotta say like, yo, fuck them. I agree we with you. We don't have time to sort of like keep trying to carry them and bring them on this dead weight. We might as well roll with the people who wanna be down and who wanna get shit done and figure out if there are 10 things on the board, let's try to figure out anywhere between four and six that we can work to work with each other on. And then the rest of them, at least let's see if we cannot get in each other's way. I, listen, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm, I'm with the, I'm with that. Like, I, I don't have time for that bullshit either. I am done explaining. I don't do all lives matter analogies. I'm not explaining what, what black blood is, where the boat stopped. Like I do it in my comedy. I don't have time for that bullshit. You either with us. You can pay me. If you pay me, maybe. Like hey. you, if you writing checks, we could talk, brother. What's his name? You either with me or against me, bro. Like that's how I feel. And I'm, I'm going to stay there. Now, um, you, I know you're a busy man. Uh, out there doing the good work. You are welcome to stay for the conversation as I bring two other brilliant minds on onto Truth Serum as we talk about this election and unpack it. They are two people that I consider true allies because they're willing to put their privilege on the line to create equity for people of color, black people in this country. And they use their voices unapologetically constant. I know they get death threats too. So um, you are welcome to stay in the, and have this conversation with us, or you might be, you know. I got Unfortunately, I do have to dip out. Uh, I hate that, that that I won't be able to stay for the rest of the conversation, but um, I do want to thank you for having me. I would love to come back. Like, I'd love to come back and have future discussions. So please consider me for um, all the people in the comments. I know I was supposed to put my... Um, my Twitter name down there or my, my Facebook name or my, my, you can find me on Facebook right there. Charles F. Coleman Jr. The account's verified just like Aida's account or Aida's account is it's verified. So you can find me there. You can find me on Instagram at CFC 40 underscore official. Again, that's CFC 40 underscore official. Um, so, you know, it's not a thought account. It's just a very serious, um, you know, conscious account. I don't be thoughting. So if that's what you're looking for, you will find it. Um, and then of course, uh, you mentioned the hoodie really quick, shameless plug, uh, blackbrilliance.net. This is my company. We make these, uh, we make them in a variety of colors. Um, we can get your flag printed on it if that's what you want to do. Um, again, blackbrilliance.net hit us up. And, uh, last shameless plug. Uh, if you want to hear more of me, you can catch me every Friday on Instagram live at 7 PM for my own show called the binder and the rapper. Um, it's again at 7 p.m. Eastern time uh, at my IG, that's CFC40 underscore official. Again, Queen Rodriguez, I want to thank you so, so, so very much for having me. I know you got to get to the next part of the conversation. It was amazing. Thank you. Come back. I appreciate you. And I'm going to order my hoodie. <laughs> <laughs>
because I believe in, in supporting black business. Absolutely. Appreciate you. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. So like I said, we are we promised you two hours of truth serum. Um, and this week has been a week for all of us. And those of us who are uh, pride ourselves on being on the on the right side of history. So I wanted to bring on two people, brilliant voices, people that have taken this administration on, but not just this administration, white supremacy, um, systemic oppression, and all of the social ills that we face in this country and have used their platforms on a daily basis to take these people to task. So I want you to please welcome Francis Maxwell and Dr. Maitha Alhassan um, to Truth Serum. What's up? Hey. What's going on? Thanks for having Happy us on. Happy to see you both. No, it's I'm, always a pleasure. I'm glad to see you both. Um, I just wanted to start quickly with each of you, and, and I'll start with you, Maitha. Please tell me what your week has been like. <laughs> I got a full night's rest last night. That was the first night of rest that I've had. We did election coverage for five hours on Clubhouse, which is a new social media platform that folks might want to check out. It's audio based. Um, uh, I spent most of the time with family processing because I wanted to figure out if they would be safe and okay. Um, I spent most days <laughs> checking in on polls and having conversations, helping my family understand the power of black women in this election. And they saw it, but we sedimented that conversation. We talked about what it what it means going forward to really support Black women and Black folks um, on a national stage and locally as well. So we were just processing together, and I think I'm going to get some more nights rest tonight. <laughs> oh, uh, Francis. <laughs> uh, I was. Um alternating with a little bit of both. I was, I was mostly toying with what was an appropriate time to switch from coffee to beer. And that, that, that like, the hours started to become earlier and earlier. It should have been around 9 a.m., 10 a.m. by the, the third day, which today. Um, it, it's just been a, it's been a whirlwind of a ride. I mean, I'm out here in New York, which is why I'm in this kind of echoey space. So pardon my uh, audio and that. I'm out here in Airbnb in New York because I, was, I actually came out to finish my movie, which I'm shooting out here um, next week. Um, and I'm also doing videos talking about the election, of course. So it's it's been juggling both of those, uh, much like everyone, I think, that's been focusing on this election. Um, it's just a lack of sleep. Um, and even with that, I, I was going to sleep, but I was fearing that I was missing something. So I'd always be tossing and turning and trying to wake myself up because with this president, it's just a constant, it's a constant state of anxiety. And I think that's what most people feel. It's like, yeah, the, the, we could tell the trend of, of where the votes were going. And it was just, it was almost like just waiting for something to, to constantly occur with him. And, and what we've seen has just been obviously the, a dire state uh, of affairs and, uh, and just a constant attack against democracy. But um, I'm happily now moving back from beer back onto coffee now that I'm starting to see places like Georgia and, and Pennsylvania and Arizona and everything's starting to, to go in our favor. So, so uh, you know, what's funny is it feels like we're in episode four of the handmaid's tale, right? Now, right? Yeah. Because that's where the, that's where you really start seeing how it all happened. Right. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I want to ask you both this question because a lot of people have reached out to me and said, they're both terrible candidates. 
what does it matter? Why are you supporting Biden? He's no better. The crime bill, but the but the crime bill, but uh, um, Kamala's uh, you know was a prosecutor that put a lot of black men in jail. So we we did receive a lot of that, and I wanted to I wanted you to say to it to address that from your point of view and how you um, deal with that because it can be overwhelming to get messages like that, and it also fills people with despair. Um, so Francis, I'll start with you. Uh, what, how do you how do you have you done? I mean, it's valid in a certain extent to to a point in which people want to ask the question as to what what is specifically Joe Biden going to be able to do, um, especially for those people that are constantly marginalized and impacted by the policies that he has put in place in the past. Now, the first thing that I have to give um, credit to Joe Biden is he, he's, and especially in the last debate, came out and, and spoke against his own decision making in that. So if you can learn as a politician, um, and, and try to adapt, then that's a major factor that has to be taken into consideration when you're looking at two candidates, especially when you look at Donald Trump, who uh, certain things like if you want to specifically focus on areas that are going to directly impact people of color, one of the big ones is police brutality, right? So in my mindset, which I'll get to why that doesn't matter as much in a minute, but in my mindset, when I'm looking at uh, someone like Joe Biden, he, he spoke out against qualified immunity. Donald Trump literally said he would never even humor it. So that's a big factor. And if you're trying to really figure out the differentiation between both of these candidates. Now, the second thing is, but I've met a lot of people who look like me, white people who would say, oh, they're no different. Uh, I, I'm not going to even humor the election because they're just as bad as each other. That is a position of privilege that that person is talking from and doesn't understand um, even just so they're looking at it from a macro level and looking at it like, well, it's not going to impact me either way, so I'm not really going to care. But you have to really start to boil down to such things like qualified immunity and certain issues that Joe Biden is going to be more um, easily maneuvered in, in a direction also in a progressive way than someone like Donald Trump. So, and then there's the other side of it where there's people who have been directly impacted by the, the horrible policies of, of Joe Biden in the past and uh, the incarceration rates that, that Kamala Harris oversaw, and you have to listen to them and how they've adapted through the history. Donald Trump has not adapted since his comments on uh, uh, the Central Park Five. He has made it his his point of view that he prioritizes one group of people over the other. Uh, if, if a candidate can can show some sort of remorse, at least, and understanding that they didn't have the best judgment and have vowed to work with those who are going to try to at least adjust and, and make this this world a better place and look to uh, dismantle the institutions that have led to so much harm, then I can't sit and say that that person isn't justified in feeling that way because I don't understand what it's like to be that person, specifically if they are black or brown. But what I can try to say from, from the point of view that I'm looking at, from analyzing it, is who's going to give you a better chance at a better future? And that's what it comes down to, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with everything Francis was saying. I think from an from an organizer's perspective, we've always been saying that Biden is at least somebody and Harris, the Biden-Harris ticket, are at least a regime that we can hold accountable with mm -hmm. some sort of moral referendum or moral insistence. The Trump administration cannot be talked to by organizers. There's no sort of pushing back. There is no kind of accountability that he 
would even um, entertain at any level. In fact, what he ended up doing throughout his presidency was go harder for white supremacy, go harder for misogyny. And so we saw that any effort that we tried to do to push up against his administration did not prove to keep our communities safer or healthier. And in fact, when it came to coronavirus, it was people of color that suffered the most dire numbers, the most dire deaths. And that's why you saw them come out significantly on election day and through the mail-in ballots. They put their lives at risk in places where they're dying twice or three times as much as other people. You know, with Latinos in um, Arizona, Latinx population, Black folks in Detroit, in Georgia, all over the place in Philly. So people from from my community, um, Arabs, Muslims, we understood that there was no negotiating with this administration. And of course, Biden-Harris is not our dream ticket, <laughs> but, all, but also on a national stage is not where all politics lives. And we have to understand that. This, the national elections are sexy for people. That's why we've been keep, we kept on impressing, like down ballot issues are also important. And the Democratic Party never learns its lesson. We understand that, but we still show up because it was a strategic vote for us. We can't, we don't even know if we're gonna be able to live another under another four years under a Trump administration. You guys saw what Stephen Miller's plan was for the next four years if he got a mandate. They were going to, excuse, <laughs> the pun or the 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 word they were going to trump up what they had been doing in the last four mm -hmm. years so this for us was a strategic decision to survive and i'll just say one last thing especially from an organizer's perspective there's i know you saw this too ida that people probably said to you and they said to me if we had somebody, if we had Trump again, then people would be very clear that he was their enemy and they wouldn't be pacified. And I said, like, that's absolutely false <laughs> because mm -hmm. most progressive movements in American history happened under the Democrat, a Democrat, under Kennedy, under Johnson. That's when the civil rights movement happened. Under Johnson's when the Black Panther Party happened. Under Obama's when Black Lives Matter happened. Under Johnson is when Cesar Chavez and uh, Dolores Huerta came out for the United Farm Workers. So what we're saying is get us out of our rapid response mode right now and let us have an administration that we could fight by building our institutions to fight them. So that's what we that's a strategic choice we made. Yeah. So um, I cannot, uh, you know. Uh, ignore the fact that the Latino vote, the Latinx vote has been a very big hot topic, right? And depending on who's talking, you hear it, it is presented differently. So um, the demonization of the Cubans in Miami uh, versus the, the saviors of the, the Mexican and Central American community in Arizona and, and so on and so forth, which I always believe is a tool of division to always mm -hmm. continuously point out the groups uh, to cry, you know, to cause dissent within Black Americans and then the 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 Latinx people. Then I'm surprised that they didn't, you know, point out the Arabs and the the Middle Easterners and the people who were, and and what their vote looked like. But how do we have these conversations and explain to people that a lot of people have been misinformed and emotionally moved. And when you talk about Cuban Americans and you talk about socialism, and I read this article this morning that there was a, a, a Congresswoman who said, we are never to use the word socialism again. It, it, it destroyed us. 
And it is, we talk about it here all the time because we're like, God, what an amazing um, a tool that, that Donald Trump has had in his administration and moving his flock through fear and emotion and an abundance of misinformation. So uh, I wanted to just have that, you know, I don't know what the question is there because there's so much to talk about it, but I certainly wanted to hear what you thought about it because it's been so harmful to my community in terms mm-hmm. of fighting because now the Puerto Ricans are like, they threw paper towels at us, you fucking Cubans and the Cubans and this, and the Mexicans are like, we, they, he called yeah. this and it's, there's no solidarity. So, um, you know, Please, either one of you can start. It, it, it's I just want to hear what Ivan, what both of you have to say about him. I'm, I mean, so I, I can talk from the perspective of coming from the United Kingdom, right, where a lot of our policies that are strongest are quote unquote socialist. Now, to take it to the level of like, what do people think of when you say socialism in America? It is a dirty word for far too many. Where does that come from? It comes from a manipulation of the term, um, and that comes that's allowed through a lack of education on the matter. Um, like anything, like people in the United States, uh, the reason that they're so misinformed on on the the the, the demise and and the constant kind of, I would say, segregation in so many ways of the black community is because they don't understand redlining. They don't understand uh, the, how how things consistently worked after slavery. They think slavery and all of a sudden. Abraham Lincoln came and then Martin Luther King helped kill the last racists by just by killing their ideas. And then all of a sudden, everything's fixed. You don't understand the specific terms that oftentimes economically um, impact what we see today and policies that are put in place and why it's the, a lot of areas suffer still to this day from things that have happened years ago. And the same thing I see in the same trend with socialism. So I had a conversation recently with an uber driver i was uh, over in bedsty and he was uh cuban and he was driving me across and he recognized me from videos and we had actually a very fruitful conversation but then when it got to the topic of, of socialism um he lived he's declared that he lived in america most of his life but his his description of it was a carbon copy of of what is comes from the mouth of, of someone on fox news or, or any of these different sources and it's a very useful tactic. The, the president understood exactly what he was doing when he constantly waged this war on socialism. And he's not the one that, he's just another manifestation of that attack. It's been going on for years. You can date it all the way back, Reagan era, it's been constant. Now, it's because people don't really grasp what it means and what actually goes into a socialized society. Now, any of the societies that are thriving under quote-unquote socialism, because I always like to say that way, because people just have so many different terms from it, uh, are ones that have the stability to handle social uh, social safety nets and social security, like the United Kingdom, the way that we are paying higher taxes on products that are woven into the price on its own, so we don't have, we don't go into stores and go to buy a candy bar, and then all of a sudden you go up to the, the, the teller, and they're like, oh, that's another 50 cents on top of that. It's woven into the price, and is included into what essentially makes that, that that country run. And you get that back when you go to the doctors and you don't have to worry about either going bankrupt or your life being taken. So it's all about give and take. But in the United States, as I said to this man in the car, I was like, the roads that we are driving on right now, that's socialism, right? The, the, you're paying into a system that will give you, essentially should be giving you what you need to survive. But the difference is in this country, there are so many industries that are controlled 
by big money, by the top 1%, like big farm industry, that means that that form of socialism, they have to wage their war on it so that they can continue to keep their pockets lined. Because if you become aware of, of how that system could potentially work in a single payer, how it could work to benefit all people in the United States, then all of a sudden you're going to start to kind of throw away that term of socialism that they want you to believe and you start to understand that it's all a manufactured term to keep big business in, in the position of power that they're in. So I think that as I'm trying to get to the question that I think you were um, uh, alluding to, Ada, is that it comes from an education of our, what it actually means. Now, you'll never hear anybody who talk about socialism mention any of the Scandinavian countries. You'll never hear them talk about Australia. You'll never hear them talk about the United Kingdom. You only hear them talk about Venezuela or, or Cuba. And, and then they'll try to blur the lines further and talk about communist areas and how they're so much more similar to, to what we, as people who understand what can become a benefit of socialist policies, are trying to push forward and say that, no, I'm not waiting in bread lines in the United Kingdom. I'm actually getting my health care. And, and the final note is a very personal kind of anecdotal for me. My father, um, 18 months ago, was diagnosed with bowel cancer. Now, he got it so, he, he, they had it caught so fast because when he hit a certain age in the United Kingdom, they send out a testing kit. That testing kit, which comes around, there is certain insurance companies that offer it. But I have a friend in the United States who works for a pharmaceutical company that, that actually manufactures the exact same kit. And that kit costs $600 if you don't have the right insurance coverage. So I was thinking to myself, if my dad was here and, and did not have the right coverage to be able to access that, that cancer might've been caught too late as it happens to so many people in the United States and he wouldn't have got the care. He was able to get that care and uh, thank God he's, in, he's into remission now. But those are the certain stories that you hear and, and those are the things that you have to try to bring up, I think, to try to drive the message across about the benefits of, of more socialized policies in order to get through to people. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and that's true, though, that you never hear them talk about the. It's always Venezuela, Cuba. Yeah. But you don't ever hear them talk about where it's working. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have an anecdote in Spain where right after the big recession 2008 and they tried to point their finger at southern European countries and said this is your fault when it was actually a whole global system that was very much rooted in um, financial institutions from New York to London. Um, my cousin, even in a time of mass austerity, so I have cousins that are Spanish citizens, when she had her child, she got 2,500 euros for having a kid. Everybody did. And that's that's when they had to lower the amount that they would give somebody. So imagine, not only is like schooling covered, so free tuition, I mean, places like Denmark, there is really no rental market because not only is the university covered, they're given a stipend to such a degree mm -hmm. that they could afford to buy a, a place. So um, not only if, if we had what we would call socialism in this country, we would have universal health care, we would have free tuition, there would be so many other things that would recreate the welfare net that the Republicans have tried so very hard through this discourse to, to tear away at because they're very much, I mean, not just them, of course, the corporate elites and the Democratic Party are, are, are the same. They're very much aligned with these multinational corporations and the corporate elite class. But I do want to say that we have a version of socialism in this country, except it's socialism for the wealthy. 
Yeah. They're the ones that are subsidized. When I have a small business, when PPP went into effect, I kept on implying through my bank and like me and 90% other women of color, our PPP claims were never processed. But whose ones were processed? Millionaires, billionaires got the money. Oh, Lord, sorry. <laughs> Stuff is all over my laptop. Millionaires and billionaires got, um, got our tax paying dollars. That those we paid them to save their businesses that never trickle down. We already have disproven this. So tied to that is what we have failed in is in framing. And unfortunately, we've adopted the framing of the disingenuous Republican Party and the hardliners in the Republican Party. So unfortunately, we've we've lived in their discursive universe. So when they say socialism is bad. We constantly, like we have to disprove, disprove, instead of unapologetically say, I'm down with socialism because it means free healthcare and not have to prove all these things about different places. But going back to your question too, that it, the way that it's tied to Cubans in Florida and the rest of how we talk about and think about the Latinx or the Latinidad community in the US, we also have to understand that for those folks that got turned off by the words socialism, like again, the, the, we're talking about the Cuban population in Florida, overwhelmingly in Miami-Dade County that voted for Trump. Um, that's the same, um, <laughs> that's the same scenario that happened in 2000. Many of us were not counting on that population for mm -hmm. a variety of reasons. And then another thing tied to that is that what we failed to recognize is with the same thing with the Arab Middle Eastern community and the Latina dad is that we have a color spectrum and there are some people in our community that are categorized as white. And so they want to be seen in proximity with whiteness. So those assaults on our communities, they don't see themselves as part of our communities. So they're fine with that. They think they're different. They think they're an exception. They think that they've transcended the racial paradigm. And so they're fine with the rhetoric that comes out of Trump because they think it's not targeted towards them. And But I do want to say that um, we have to, it's so funny, as we were having this conversation, my dad just sent me an article that said Latino voices overwhelmingly supported Biden in the election. We have to also break down that it's not just about the different groups, like you were saying, the Puerto Ricans that really stood, stood uh, for Biden in Florida. Um, but it's about how these exit polls came out and the national framing around it. So the exit polls, you know, the, the, the article that we were talking about and is sent all over um, most of the media to do this kind of framing. One, it was taken from 22 states. So we don't know which states they took it from. But two, 75% of the data they're pulling is from voters on election day. And we know that's why we saw the red mirage that election day was mostly going to be Trump voters. So for our percentages to even feel, although they were over 50% for Latino community, for Arab community, for other communities that for, clearly for the black community, although we're disappointed that there might've been an uptick in Trump's numbers, there was an uptick because we were taking data from election day, not from mail-in ballots where mm -hmm. we where the Democrats were the overwhelming majority of of that methodology of voting. So we have to like, we, de we desperately have to reframe these narratives before it becomes logic. Francis, you were gonna say something, I heard you. I was just nodding in agreement. That was all I was saying. I was just going, mm -hmm. Sometimes <laughs> I do it a little audibly, um, but yeah, no. I, it's, it, 
it's bang on. And specifically, um, one thing that I didn't even touch upon, which absolutely right, is education also. Like we talk about, my point was about that to try to target socialism as uh, in that area which Republicans wield so well, let's be honest, they do wield it well because that's why we don't have Bernie Sanders on the ticket. It's because they're able to consistently wield that narrative. And I was talking about education, something that is so inaccessible to so many people, whereas it's kind of that catch-22 where if you had more of a socialized outlook, education would be more accessible to so many people because it's free in a lot of these places. And they're able to offer advantages. Like for instance, in Australia, they are able to offer advantages for doctors to remain in the public sector uh, by going to university that they go to a medical school to study. They offer them the possibility of remaining in the public sector and advantages of um, lesser cost on their PhD and everything that they do to study. Imagine that in the United States, because one of the biggest reasons that that private sector of healthcare is just so, it seems like it is unbeatable at times is because it's so lucrative to so many people. So I guess it is that catch 22 where I think education and in, in, in kind of trying to further the conversation around it uh, only can be taken on if more people are willing to, to, to have that conversation, I guess. Um, so one of the, uh, the hot topics and talking points is white women showed up for Donald Trump. Surprise. <gasps> no. <laughs> Who would have known? <laughs> but you know, what's funny is that in, in learning that some of the white women that I know voted for Trump for whatever they thought were suitable reasons. And, you know, the last election it was white women voted for Trump, but this election has been seasoned with this Karen phenomenon that has really targeted white women that I think sometimes, um, you know, removes the accountability of white men and what their participation is in um, in 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 systemic oppression and racism. Uh, because I do believe that sexism is a factor in all of this stuff, right? Regardless mm -hmm. of the, the the reality that the white Karen's be Karen-ing, as they say. But um, I, I wanted you guys, I wanted to talk to you about that as well, because I want you to break that down from your perspective in terms of the people are like, like, like there's been a revolution of white women who are now revealing themselves to hate um, people of color or not have empathy for people of color and their struggle in this country and black people. And that all of a sudden Donald Trump converted all these white women into Trumpism, where in reality, that's what's been going on forever. So much. Oh my God. So when the exit poll came out about that and we had so many great people in this conversation. I started on Clubhouse. I titled it, um, White Women Explain Yourselves. And had them come up on stage and give a take on it, why there was an increase. And again, there was somebody who does um, data science and they said, you know, hold off for a second while we wait for polls that come in that aren't as reflective of a Republican voting block. But two, it should have been a smash, like you were saying, Ida, in the other direction for all the ways that their narratives and voices were centered in Time's Up, in Me Too. Um, as, as we saw, um, Alyssa Milano kind of jumped on and tried to take on Me Too. And then it took a minute for folks to center the actual person who started it, which who was Tarana Burke, right? Um, and so what we have to ask ourselves is, what is what is the work white women are willing to do with their communities? 
And that's a question I still don't have an answer from the white women who are around me. What does it look like for folks to go back to the places, like if you're in LA and New York, where are your homes? Are you from the Midwest? Are you from the South? What does it look like for you to go back and actually do the work to educate, to organize? If you say you wanna be about this movement, then you have to do the work like we've been doing in our communities. I'll give you an example. Like, as I've been mentioning, the Arab American community was solidly Republican until um, George Bush's first year. Clearly we know his response one to 9-11 to criminalizing Arabs and Muslims. And so steadily they've changed their alliances and allegiances more with a left-wing politic, even though for most cases, those communities are pretty socially conservative and fiscally conservative, but we've convinced them as organizers to think more deeply about how they voting for Republicanism is a vote for white supremacy. And I mean that, I mean, this is what the, the party has really been about for the last couple of decades. So what I think um, I've been pressing, as I said, upon white women is to do the unglamorous work to not be in the public stage. And that's that's what we have to, to do to say, like, if you wanna be in our spaces, one, don't talk for us. <laughs> put us put us up in front and center. Put the most vulnerable, the most impacted folks front and center and find every way to uplift their voices and the work that they do. Now people are talking about Stacey Abrams. We've been we should have been talking about Stacey Abrams forever. And, and it's not just Stacey Abrams, it's a movement of folks doing this work. Yeah. So um that's that's the unglamorous stuff they have to do. And unfortunately, I think that some of them believe that just getting on Twitter or doing an IG live is enough work. They have to roll up their sleeves and go into community. Yeah. You get, Francis, you get them. You go at them. You got them. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm enamored with your take sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, I, I always would, would I, I get stopped in the street uh, the, after I first started doing videos. And I remember um, I, I was asked, by uh, the person who's watching he's like what what do you deal with with like like who's your audience like what is your is it like black people because it's a black guy that was speaking to me and i was like man like no offense i love people watching me of course i want anybody to watch me one uh he was telling me that he gets his news from me so the first thing i did was tell him that's i'm not news like that's a big problem on its own the fact that people would see me as a news source i'm not but then i i got into a great conversation and I talked about how my audience to me was always clearly white people. Like my job is n not to tell people of color that, hey, you're oppressed because they know that. They've been telling that for years and, and, and trying and working, uh, as we said there within communities to organize, to try to raise their voices because oftentimes people who look like me, white men and white women, they, they would not be inclusive to any groups and they would not want to hear it because they didn't have to. They were already in the groups. They were already, they, were the people who assumed to be in power and were given all the opportunities to have their voice heard from the beginning. Yeah, you can, obviously there's a case to be made that it, it was white men to begin with and, and white women, um, as you mentioned, Ada, have been the target of this Karen campaign. Um, but that's because one of the most frustrating things I think um, comes up from, especially a Donald Trump presidency, is they almost like remove the parts of, of the things that he stands for and the things that go along with white supremacy that directly impact women. Like there, there is a, someone who's set to uh, take a, a, a lifelong position in the Supreme Court to all, who's talked in, in 
in being cloudy on, on a policy that removes the rights of women to control their own bodies. And to have that conversation, especially with white women, it's almost like they remove those parts of white supremacy because they then subscribe to other parts of it where it, and unfortunately, it's always going to be that there is that racial prejudice that is so ingrained in this country. It's a stain that one of the best videos I've seen in response to this, this, um, this election, but also just in shared perspective was Eddie Glade's uh, um, opinion that he did on, on MSNBC. It was absolutely outstanding and it was so groundbreaking uh, to so many people, but they were like, the point was, how is that groundbreaking to you? Have you really been paying attention? Like his whole point was that this has been happening and yeah. Donald Trump is just a manifestation of a new form of it uh, and an updated form, a different voice is gonna be put to it, but it's been happening across this country since its beginning, this is who we are. So to go back to the original point of what I would try to do is because I look a certain way to a certain group of people, I would always get pushback saying, why are you going against your own people? And I would always be like, my own people, mate, I'm Scottish, I don't know what you're talking about, don't put me in to that group. Like, I'm not going against Willie Wallace and the rest of my team, my people, I'm going against people in this country who far too often have not been uh, forced to look at themselves and their own role. And, and even boiling that down, it wasn't just going after people who hold a certain prejudice. It was going after the moderates, the people that will ch share a Black Lives Matter square uh, on Instagram, but then avoid the actual work that goes every single day um, to, to actively be anti-racist. That is the big factor. I had to learn myself that the things that I was taught, even in Scotland, even across the world, um, were, were bathed in a sense of supremacy. And I had to unlearn those things. And that is what it is. It's an act of unlearning. And to unlearn, you have to be humble. You have to be willing to see your own faults, which as we know, uh, as you mentioned, Ada, it goes along with the, the sense of misogyny that, that goes hand in hand with white supremacy and the ego that goes along with it and this sense of superiority where they don't want to check themselves because we're perfect. Of course, we're not going to check ourselves. Whereas I always see it as, as my role to kind of try to highlight the the, the, the sheer fallacies in, in the points that people who, who try to uphold this prejudice make. I, I would always say that racism and stupidity go hand in hand. It's a match made in heaven. Um, and my role was always to try to not go after the person who's that, that, that prejudice, prejudice because it's second nature to them because the reality is not often not, time's not going to change. It is the kind of, it is the moderate, it is the Amy in Central Park who claims to be uh, a lifelong Democrat, but swiftly picks up the phone and calls the cops on a, on a black man who is taking photos of birds in Central Park because she quote unquote feels threatened. So it's people like that who feel like they, are down with the cause and feel like they believe and are progressive. And then all of a sudden, when it comes down to it, you swiftly realize that that prejudice that they've been withholding within themselves has gone unchecked for so long. So um, the role of, of white people who believe, who consider themselves allies, uh, as Rihanna said, are, are you pulling up when the cameras aren't on? Like, yeah. or is it, it's when it's all well and good to, to share the black squares on Instagram and, 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 go to the marches because it's now popular. Like, what are you doing? Are you focusing on local elections? Are you looking at someone like Jackie Lacey in LA who uh, Kendrick Sampson was just holding an, uh, an amazing movement against someone who is a person of color, but has been upholding these policies that have been 
uh, incarcerating and targeting minority communities? Are you looking at the specifics in each election to make sure that you're doing the work, the grassroots work to, to give voices to those who are being silenced and those that are marginalized in certain areas? And I guess the most important one, which seems like a cliche, but it, it's, it is the reason why it, it continues to be a stain on the fabric of the nation is, are you listening? Yeah, because that's the most important thing. Are, I, you, are you actually listening? And people want to talk before they've even listened to what happens. And I, I come from like a sociology background, and I always look at things from a sociological perspective. And it's all about the idea of empathy is to not essentially put yourself in other people's shoes, but people conflate that with, oh, well, I put myself in their shoes, so I'm going to act this way. Well, are you taking into consideration? the fact that you're not in that person's shoes and there is certain things that go into to why those decisions are made in preferential to that group of people instead of you. So uh, I guess amidst that muddled answer, I just try my best to um, not beat around the bush in calling out the specific group of people that in order for real change to happen and the reason this we're in this, as Baldwin says, trapped in a history and history is trapped in us is because we don't listen enough and we don't pay attention to the moderates that get away with just sharing the black squares and don't actually show up when it's needed. Yeah, can I just say something really quickly on that note? And I know I fully am self-aware that I interrupted Francis as he was saying we don't listen enough. So I apologize no, for no, that. No, 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 I, I, wanna, I wanna just hold myself accountable. Um, because uh, I, I appreciate that. I do I, I want to think a little bit deeper of what you were presenting about white women and white supremacy, which is, you know, we get accused of playing identity politics or making things about race, but they're the ones actually playing into identity politics and making things about race because mm -hmm. why would you choose your whiteness over gender solidarity? And mm -hmm. so not that you have to make those two choices differently, but that's, yeah. that's a clear choice that was made. And so how we have to understand this is uh, we'll, we'll give one issue that makes it very clear, which is abortion, right? So that's, you know, that's why Amy Coney Barrett was so properly speeded through by the Republicans. And even, you know, we have to be honest, um, in, in my community, in other communities of color, they are sometimes socially conservative and appreciated being um, anti-abortion. So, mm -hmm. What, but what that comes down to is that white people don't care about us having abortions. That's why they're performing hysterectomies at the border. They don't care if we stop having babies. They care if white women stop having babies because they're obsessed with this demographic shift, which I'm sorry to break it for folks. It's not 2042, it's now. It already happened. The demographic shift has always happened or always been present in America, but it's been about who has been disenfranchised or intimidated to vote or whose vote has been suppressed and then doesn't reflect the real demographics of this country. So after Obama got elected, of course, this is like a manifestation of centuries of white supremacy, but a group of white supremacists met in Tennessee and they said, our framing narrative is we have to popularize the white genocide that's happening in this country, where we're gonna lose a grip, we're gonna lose a hold of this country. And of course, who they squarely focused in on was the reproductive labor of white women. So if white women aren't put back in and re-domesticated and forced to have babies, this is, this is the Handmaid's Tale. This is like clearly it then we are gonna die as a race. And you see this, if you look at white supremacist like sites that sometimes 
masquerade as these benign, I love white people, Facebook groups, all their memes are anti-miscegenation and about men of color raping white women. Why did Trump start with Mexicans are rapists? It was very clear pandering to that fear that men of color are going to rape white women and pollute the race of whiteness. That was, that's what he was talking to. Why was he calling for white suburban women? Love me, vote for me. He was trying to scare them about black men, right? So we have to think about really the infrared ways that race is being played to solidify the white woman's role to be a baby maker for white supremacy. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I think that um, in addition to using abortion as a means to further oppress women of color um, through the, the laws, it also facilitates um, a world where white women whose numbers in sterili sterility have gone up and they're very worried about those numbers from the census. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about um, sexism because I don't know how you felt about this, but I felt like Kamala was invisible after a certain point. We stopped hearing about Kamala, um, a black woman who doesn't sit well with white supremacists, right? Um, Interestingly enough, held to a higher standard, we can hold Kamala accountable for what she's done and at the same time, be real about the fact that Masada Noir is real in this country. And she has done, you know, she did her job as a prosecutor and she did participate in some things that were oppressive to black people, but those systems were in place long before Kamala came along. So politicians are gonna politician. And so she's been held to this higher standard, which has always happened with Black women. It happened with Stacey Abrams. It, it happens with all women of color. Like we have to, um, we have to stand on this moral ground that white women are not, you know, are exempt from. Uh, with, I mean, well, we knew when when the woman had an affair with another woman, and they they got rid of her here in California. So we know that that's not true. But I did want to talk about what your thoughts were on what Kamala's role has played in this election. Um, Sarah Palin was everywhere. Kamala was in the basement. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the first thing they, they, they talked about all the conservative talking heads is even after her uh, relations in the past, like they immediately went for her personal life and uh, talking about affairs and everything else. And, I, and I'm always just, I'm like, whilst worshiping at the altar, the altar of a thrice married pussy grabber who had an affair with a porn star. Like, I mean, it's just, it, you're absolutely raped, right. It goes, probably raped girls, right? Yes, exactly. So you, you talk about the double standards pathetic and it, the difference with Kamala Harris is you just, obviously, I would argue that it's, it's, it's for, the, for someone like Kamala Harris to come in to this position. Um, in my opinion, I wanted Stacey Abrams. I was always on the Stacey Abrams camp and I thought she would be perfect, but that's because I looked at the, the specific policies and why I, I just think Stacey Abrams, there should be a statue erected for her after this election for the work that she's done in Georgia. But I, I thought that Kamala Harris was a good choice also because I, as I said, the, the humility that she had to, um, to speak so openly about the decisions she's made in the past, um, was something that I admired, but the attacks that came to her were only ever kind of focused on a, on a personal level. They never really discussed 
the amazing things that she's put into place um, as a senator, as the first black senator, as someone who um, is so unapologetic in the way that she holds people accountable. Uh, it, to me, it was always going to be a case of what's the lowest hanging fruit. And unfortunately, in this country, when it comes to uh, black women, that's oftentimes they don't need to go to any other branch. That's all that they need to do, because as you mentioned before, there's already an entrenched bigotry in this country. So many people who they are trying, these uh, Republican uh, uh, kind of talking heads are trying to appeal to have already made their mind up by seeing what she looks like. And they don't need to kind of pay attention to any other detail. Now, I did think that on the Biden side, I would have given more air to, to Kamala Harris to, to be, um, to, to give her more room to speak out because she is ferocious in the way that she holds people to account. And it's something that I, I think that if, if this election hasn't gone this way, I would have looked at that as a role that maybe played uh, a significant factor in why it didn't go a certain direction. But thankfully it has. I just think that there was maybe some internal discussions going on that, that, that didn't give her the opportunity to do that. But I don't know what you guys think. I just felt like they could have given her more opportunity to, to kind of lead the line on certain things. Yeah, I love Frederick's comment there that he met, she made break Kavanaugh cry. Uh, <laughs> Very true. It's true. I do also want to um, think about how um, well, Biden gets the nomination somewhere around the time that the Black Lives Matter renewal of um, protests started happening in response to the tragic murder of George Floyd. And so I think up until that time, they were probably having serious conversations of, ha of having Amy Klobuchar as the mm -hmm. VP. So I think we should also, I mean, we're gonna, I'm gonna lead into the unfair treatment of Kamala in a second, but give credit to the movement to force a hand in recognizing how historically black women have been marginalized. So, you know, remember he came out and said he's going to for sure have a woman VP and then forced Bernie to say that too. I don't know if you guys remember, this was like as they were having their debate during um, coronavirus moment. Um, and then what ended up happening is there were more leaked conversations about who was on the list and then Amy Klobuchar left. And I would say that the person I was gunning for was on the list, but clearly she didn't get it. Karen Bass, who has been a phenomenal politician from Los Angeles that came up in community organizing. And I'm originally from LA. So um, I, I uphold uh, folks who do the work here. But I would, I would say, you know, this massage noir is everywhere. You know, um, the founders of Black Lives Matter are all black women. And for a long time, they were putting to the forefront black men to speak in about BLM in the place of the women that founded this movement. And they also emphasized that it was a leaderful movement. But, you know, to get back to Kamala, we already knew what the right was going to do. You know, they came out the gate with the birtherism um, mm. arguments that they gave Obama, right? Like her father is not a naturalized citizen or is not a citizen. She's not a citizen. We're like, what? All over the place. But she did. You know, what was interesting, I was looking at some of the exit polls from different cities and Biden basically almost won 90 percent of San Francisco because of her, you know, so she is and has a history of being from the Bay and she has a connection to, you know, she went to, to an HBCU. Um, so there is something that really connects her to a black population that clearly they might have been wanting to use, but also scares the Democratic establishment. 
Um, so I, I agree with you. There are so many more ways that such a strong, vibrant politician who is incredibly powerful when it comes to debate and arguing could have been used. And also somebody that people had mixed feelings about because of the prosecutorial history, but still, um, you know, she was put to the side. But I would say, though, that like we should take this moment to honor, um, you know, if we're calling this Biden election, the first black vice, black woman yeah. vice president ever in American history. She could be president. You know, that's massive. But that also says something about America that we have to go through this door instead of like being able to run a black woman as president. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's pretty gross. Um, you know, we we go with the battle of it, are we more racist than sexist? And it goes, you know, when we honor intersectionality, the answer is yes to both. <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's really, you know, it's really obnoxious. I get tired of people telling me how uh, corrupt Cory Booker is, how corrupt Kamala is. And I'm like, look at all of the other politicians I know of what under ten that don't take checks from corporations. So yeah. if, if we if we we remove those people, they all are corrupt. Why are you just pointing out the black and brown ones, right? Yeah. So uh, what do you get, what do you think is going to happen um, this election? I, I would love to hear your predictions because everybody is like on eggshells, and I know that Donald Trump is challenging this. But I'm starting to see even Republicans back away from him because they under, are understanding that he is directly attacking our democracy. Yeah, I just had this argument with um, a fellow who was on uh, Fox News a bunch of times on BBC Scotland, actually. I called in and they were talking about he, he was saying to me that Republican lawmakers are even um, shocked by this. And I said, oh, were they shocked when they looked to pass policy in Pennsylvania six months ago so that they could ask for a delayed read of these votes? This has been a plan that's been put in place for months. They, they understood that since coronavirus took fall, like I, I will be in full discrepancy as I always try to be. You might not always agree, but I don't know if without coronavirus, Joe Biden's run against Donald Trump would have been as successful as what it has been. Now that's not saying that Donald Trump deserved in any means. I just think that a lot of people who weren't, um, who maybe were on the fence, it, like it, it was told basically that um, handling of coronavirus was something that many people kind of swayed their vote on. But in regard to what is going to happen, is a video I did a few days ago, Bernie Sanders is the prophet who predicted exactly down to almost the exact time. I think he got it like 10 minutes uh, wrong. We said that around 10 p.m. Donald Trump will will throw this hissy fit. And I think it was like 9.49 when Trump actually tweeted out. So Bernie Sanders is a living Simpsons episode in that sense. But he's been paying attention. And if you've been paying attention, you'll see that in regards to what Donald Trump has been trying to instill into the, this, this country in the minds of his most uh, adamant followers is that there's this big uh, kind of underlying fraud in regards to mail-in ballots, which have been fine for years, by the way, in elections. But all of a sudden, this time around, when we're in the midst of a pandemic that he woefully mismanaged and people don't want to go to the actual polls, um, that's when all of a sudden it becomes a problem. So he's not going to go quietly. Um, he, he's going to try and kick up a fuss. They've been, they've, as I said, they've had this in, instilled in their mind for years. And while there is some Republican lawmakers who seem to be stepping away, and in, 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 uh, there was a, a 
I think it was a tweet that came out from an NBC associate that said a White House official is trying to figure out the ways to break it to Donald Trump. The, this election's out of his grasp. And I'm like, I'll, volu- I'll volunteer his tribute, please. Send me in there. <laughs> she volunteered to break it to him. A full line in there. But um, yeah, I, I just, as far as which way it's going to go, um, I'm disappointed in, in you step away from the presidency and the Senate results. I know it's not been called yet. Um, which just shows that there is still a lot of work to be done, a ton of work to be done uh, at the grassroots level to, in order to um, instill confidence uh, or at least try to build confidence in the Democratic Party because uh, Joe Biden um, was not, for many progressives, we did the work to, to get him elected. And many people, we owe so much to specifically um, people in, in groups all across the country, marginalized groups that did the work to carry the back of this election forward, black women, people of color, who, who always are tasked, always are tasked with standing by this party that oftentimes doesn't give them anything in return. So the work starts today and tomorrow, every day, every day from now going forward, if, if, if Biden's to be the president-elect, which we assume he will be, it's a whole Tim accountable. And that's where it falls upon, again, people like myself and other white people who are, uh, who are aligned with this this movement, it's it's to hold him accountable so that he lives up to positions and policies that's going to help those that help get him elected. The, you know, we need to be going in to places like Atlanta and be offering a voice to those that did the grassroots work. We need to be working for Stacey Abrams if she decides to run again to try to move that, that ball forward. We need to be going to places uh, like Miami and trying to have those conversations with specific people in groups that feel um, ostracized by the Democratic Party. And why is that? You know, we need to be giving voices to, as you said, the, the specific groups in Arizona that help further this conversation. And as you mentioned to earlier, uh, Ada, we need to start talking about groups that are just considered a monolith and start breaking it down to specifics. I mean, we spend a lot of time discussing specific groups of people and, and what their interests are. But the Native Americans, uh, Hispanic in the in the United States, they're just grouped into these categories and just assumed, uh, like almost the, in the interview that Joe Biden did with Charlemagne the God that I thought was one of his worst moments where he just kind of assumed, well, if you belong to a specific group and you don't vote for me, then you're not really that group. So I think we've got a lot of work to do um, in, in the wake of the election uh, to try to at least I, I, I see people, see everyone who who has given so much to elect this man, or to try to get him into this position to be elected, and it's it's going to be a, I think a major disappointment if that isn't taken seriously from a, a, at every level once we move forward. If only Stacey Abrams had a Stacey Abrams. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the truth. Yeah. 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 Supporting her in the way that she needed to be supported. Absolutely. And I agree with everything Francis is saying. I mean, we have to think about, as I said at the top of this hour, the fact that Black and Latinx and um, Indigenous communities like Arizona, Navajo um, and and other ones, um, they are at the highest risk right now for fatality from coronavirus. And they Mm -hmm. risked that and they showed up. 
didn't even just do the mail-in ballots. They showed up because they knew that they had to push forward around the red mirage. So those communities, we literally owe our lives to. I would say that um, when it comes to analyzing this moment and where we're at, um, I, I think it the tide changed the moment that Fox News called Arizona for Biden. Mm -hmm. I think that was that to me signaled, wow, he doesn't have this propaganda machine at his feet anymore. And he has been really upset with their election coverage because it wasn't 100 percent part of his demagoguery machine. So I, I and even CNN still won't call Arizona. Right. Um, but I think that this is pretty much a, a Biden win through the votes, the organizing, the work of people of color. So when I heard the corporate media, or even, I mean, I'm going to be honest, Ida, our place that we participate in lead with the story of, look at how many people of color voted for Trump. That's not the story. The story is, look how we put Biden over the edge when white people should have showed up for a landslide to take Biden to the edge. But that polling was actually really disheartening to see that almost 48% of people said that they were either fine with how Trump handled coronavirus or that it was okay, maybe even more. Like there was 34% that said very badly when we know medical officials have told us that if we started doing things back January 2020, even February 2020, all of this would not be the way it is. 200, 300,000 lives wouldn't have been lost. I mean, you can even tie the loss of lives to um, to Trump's um, rallies in the summer. 700 people died who went to his rallies and 30,000 people got infected by coronavirus. We don't even have the numbers from the past week where he did his little rally blitz and left people out in the cold. We'll probably get even more exposed and vulnerable to the coronavirus. So those things is what is at the top of my mind is that we're living with 68, 69 million people that thought this was okay. That, right. that he built up an economy 48% thought that he built up an economy that was very good or good as we're suffering from massive home evictions, from record high unemployment. This is what we need to deal with. And then the other thing is we all need to make Georgia our number one mission all the way through January 5th with those runoff races. That's what we need to cement so that for two years at least the Senate is Democrat and we can overturn some bullshit. I'm with you. And listen, I know that um, uh, both systems, both po political parties are corrupt and they're both broken. But the reality of it is, is that there is no mass exodus in the plan for any of us. We're going to have to be here and we're going to have to live here. So instead of complaining all the time, we're going to have to do some real work in order for the, the country to be better and work for us. And, and 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 listen, I can't say I'm disappointed in California because California did vote for Joe Biden, but they also voted against um, affirmative action, and they also, you know, Uber rent control, and then for Uber and Lyft, yeah, yeah, and, and Uber and Lyft, and you know, uh, there are there are a lot of disparities that we deal with. Uh, when it comes to communities of color, and they are different, and it is okay for them to be different. Asian Americans have a whole different reality in this country than Latinos and Black people. And and fighting for inclusion to get into schools like UCLA and, and Harvard, and you know we have this big fight on our hands because white supremacy always enables those conversations to be had 
when we are framed in what that are framed in a way that we're always fighting for the scraps while they feast at the top. Uh, but I, I do feel like a lot of people did show up and the work begins now, whether Donald Trump is president again or Joe Biden works, is the president. And that's what we're saying. There, the, the world is, America is not going to magically become better if Joe Biden is president, but mm -hmm. it will become better because we would have rid of that cancer that has brought so much ugliness to light that we can now start working on uh, because it's been here. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to, I don't want to close with me talking. So I want, I want you to let people know what you got going on, how they can follow you. And more importantly, you know, any, any last, last words, it's so funny that you want to leave us with and the listeners and the people who do show up for truth serum, who are filled with, um, you know, who feel a sense of despair and disheartenment because they, they feel like, Donald Trump and Biden were, we were just picking the lesser of two evils. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say with that, I come from LA. Um, you guys can follow me at the at here, Instagram and Twitter. And I'm also just at Matha on Clubhouse. I have a show um, I'm doing called Source and Angle, where I evaluate the news through the sources that we get it and try to understand the angle that comes out because we really need a revolution around how the news is framed and the narratives that we tell. And I would say, you know, coming from LA, having a history and doing community organizing, being involved and being led by such phenomenal people, LA had big wins. While the state of California might have not, LA was able to unseat one of the most um, murderous regimes under the, the current DA, Jackie Lacey, with Gascon. Um, and the, he's going to meet with BLM that was a part of really putting him up and defeating Jackie Lacey. And then we won measures, Measure J, we meant props that re-enfranchised people who were incarcerated and then mm -hmm. are also moving towards um, divesting from a murderous police department towards the community. So I would tell folks, go local. And that's how we build up other parties. I know people are frustrated with the Democratic Party. I am as well. I'm really honest about that. But we cannot expect a party like the Green Party to carry us. We have to build parties locally. Look at what Working Families is doing in New York and the rest of the country. We have to do that work, which is sometimes not as glamorous, but it is even more rewarding where people are putting together people's budgets, and then giving power and voice to ourselves. Um, also LA just elected a full supervisors board of women. So we're, we're, making, we're making things happen. Follow me if you wanna learn more, not just about LA, but especially uh, race and class and gender analysis about the politics of America and the globe. So that's what I'm here for. Thank you so much, Ida. I really admire you. The way that you can talk about this work and give it a fun comedic spin for folks is, it's necessary work and it's beautiful work. Thank you. I appreciate you. I feel the same way about you. And you guys are doing great work with Rami because um, I think people don't realize how important art is in informing the world on how and how they see communities of color and the way that we operate as human beings and not just like we're llamas and we're doing a whole other. It's really frustrating when people ask me those questions. Francis, how are you going to fix the world, Francis? <laughs> Trying to get through to my fellow white folk. So I'm trying to do that's <laughs> it's a brick wall right in front. No, I'm a 
I don't know. I mean, I, I'm trying to do it in a different, in several avenues. So I, I, it was no surprise. I kind of moved a stepped away a little bit from um, doing kind of political videos and working more uh, in local kind of grassroots movements to try to focus. You know, I've always kind of been the connection that I had early on with uh, Colin Kaepernick's movement led me to want to do a lot of work specifically in uplifting the voice of Know Your Rights camp. And specifically when that was going into um, George Floyd and the protests were, were coming, some of the work that they were doing was incredible, like offering um, uh, funding to, to bail those out that were out in, in protesting. So that was much my focus uh, coming out into the new year. Um, and then obviously with the election around the corner, started doing more work again, producing videos because some of the, the, the boiling frustration that was inside of me had to either come out that way or it was gonna come out and get me in trouble some other way. So I had to just go back to doing uh, some videos and I, I'm still doing them over at um, Occupy Democrats. I mean, um, I was doing segments, fact checking Donald Trump. I had to drink in between every lie that I was fact checking because the man pumps out an average of 55 lies a day. But um, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself if he, uh, if he, once, he's, once he's gone. Who am I going to fact check after that? I'll have to figure <laughs> out somebody else. Um, but then, as uh, kind of importantly, too, is like a connection to what you were saying, Ada, uh, about the work that Meta's doing on Rami, too, is like I see the arts as um, an avenue. We actually have a kind of little connection there. Rami was, um, he studied at the same school. I came to New York originally three years ago to study at, at William Asper School of Acting. Oh, and I Asper, yeah. Yeah, so uh, and we had the same teacher, Barbara, who's an absolute legend. So I had a lot of conversations with her, and, I, and I've always had the dream of being a writer, um, screenwriter. The, the, my first, like, work I kind of into in journalism was um, through writing. And um, so that was always kind of an avenue that I thought was powerful in, in its in its methodology of of essentially getting across a similar message that you would get across in journalism. Like if you look at a movie like Moonlight, I see that as a journalistic piece and, and get out able to weave such uh, powerful social constructs into a horror movie. So kind of that was my work for the past uh, year, kind of leading up to this year where I was able to get uh, funding for uh, a first short movie that I'm doing based in Bed-Stuy, um, Brooklyn, uh, that targets gentrification because such a uh, prominent issue all across New York and working with grassroots movements inside uh, of Brooklyn to give voice to, to that story, you know, um, and, and help through that avenue. But at the same time, I'm always going to jump in front of the camera uh, to rip into people if I think that they're just uh, kind of stepping out of line. So as far as getting in contact, um, all my information, kind of, I'm all under that handle at Francis M. Maxwell, usually on Twitter and Instagram and stuff. The videos that I do are always on Facebook. You can see them at Francis M. Maxwell on Facebook or uh, through Occupy Democrats work. And then to the final point of what about those that feel a little disenfranchised? I think the words were spoken before. I don't think I could put it into any better um, framework. It's about if you want to feel like you can make a change in the party that does not uphold the values, but clearly if you're interested in that aligns more so than um, those on the right, then local focus is the way that you can try to get your voice heard. Like you listen to the early interviews from Alessandra Ocasio-Cortez and she talks about feeling disenfranchised from that, that party. And what did she do? She activated and mobilized locally um, and, and was able to 
garner the motivation of people. And I'm not saying you have to go out there and run. I mean, if you do, trust me, let us know and we'll help support you. But just garnering a group of people that, that feel and finding a community that not everyone's going to agree. Not everyone is going to be on board with every single policy. As you mentioned, California as an example. You've got voting rights for those who are formerly incarcerated. The war on drugs has been won by drugs. Take that, Ronald Reagan. So these things can be done, right? Uh, these things can be done when, they, when you activate groups of people in local areas that you can focus on. And there's always battles to be fought. That was one of the things I, I, I was screaming from the rooftops after in the wake of George Floyd and the, the Black Square movement um, was like, at that same time, there was, there was conversations going on specifically in LA that um, was mentioned earlier with, with Jackie Lacey and people were turning up to protest, but then were turning away when, uh, when hordes of people were going to Jackie Lacey's headquarters and, and calling for that replacement because that is where you can enact real change. So I wouldn't lose hope. It's, it's understandable to feel like the Democratic Party doesn't represent people who have been oftentimes kind of just pushed into an echo chamber. But the reality is your voice has a better chance of being heard in, uh, under this movement and in focusing on local elections to help push this movement forward. There's always going to be um, a great avenue to voice your frustration if you want to do it that way. So thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, it's been obviously I, your work is echoing the, the point made before is always humor is an amazing tool, but the way that you deliver it is always with a scathing uh, point to be made, which this makes it even better. I mean, that's why I loved you and every time you were on the Young Turks and um, thanks for yes. having me on here to talk. I appreciate you both. Thank you. And listen, all hands on deck is going to take all of us to dismantle this system. And mm -hmm. some can just complain in the comments section of people's uh, that who are actually trying to do something or you can get your ass up and go do something. And if you are overwhelmed with this reality that this is not going to ever change and it's going to always be like that, then we don't need to hear from you. So anyway, we, you know, we need to keep it moving, but thank you Peace both. out to them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're going to be complaining, we, I'm going to, I'm going to always try to figure out a better world for myself and my kids and my kids, kids, because that's, that's what my ancestors wanted. But I could sit here and say, well, Joe Biden is, is the oppressor, you know, no shit. The, the Republicans <laughs> and the Democrats, uh, racism was here before all of that. So what are we doing? We're going to keep it moving. Um, anyway, thank you both for being here. Let's hope that uh, next week we are celebrating. I would love for you both to come back and um, I will continue to follow your work as well because I think it is important for all of us to be a part of the solution. Um, so have a great weekend and uh, hopefully we'll be celebrating next week. And um Fat so will be on a treadmill crying. <laughs> and the words of Joe Biden, inshallah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Don't know what that means. If the good Lord wills it. All right. All right. See you later. Thank you, guys. Bye.